Good morning, everyone, and welcome to episode three of Tilting at Windmills with Mike Donahue. I am super fortunate and lucky uh, today to have our guest, Neil Garrett. Hi, Neil. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Good, good. And for those of you who didn't pick it up just there, Neil is not from America. Neil is a foreigner and uh, and from from the shores of England. Where actually were you born in England, Neil? I was born in Leicester, which is uh, in right in the middle of England, and it has the dubious benefit that where I live now in the south, I'm considered a northerner, and when I go to the north of England, I'm considered a southerner. Leicester is one of my favorite words of cities because it is the one that is most uh, incorrectly spelled if you're talking about <laughs> phonetics. Uh, but I love it for that. If they, if they, if they would just re worded to l-e-s-t-e-r I'd, I'd be a happy man but um no such like thing. like the name yes yes why can't it be lester anyway uh neil uh neil you're obviously here to talk uh politics uh but we always like to start off with a little bit of light stuff so um anything good that you're watching or reading or listening to right now yeah, well, sticking with the political theme, I've been watching, uh, it's actually a French series, it's called Baron Noir, or The Black Baron, which is kind of a French version of House of Cards. It's about this, uh, so the, the, the title character is this um, very devious, scheming uh, socialist politician from the north of France, he's from the gritty industrial northern areas of France. And it's all about how he, he's one of those sort of backroom operators who's... Uh... But it's good. You, you kind of lost me when you said it was um, a gritty industrial part of France. <laughs> because I'm really... Now I, now I know it's uh, fiction. How about, how about books? Anything that um, you're into right now? Yeah, I've just uh, finished actually a, an American book by uh, Catherine Haney, I think her name is pronounced, uh, called Standard Deviation which is kind of a, a wryly humorous look at, uh, it's, it's about this couple, they live in New York. And uh, it's all, I guess it's all about the sort of pressures of modern life and the, the pressures on marriage. And they have a, a son who uh, is kind of mildly autistic, kind of high functioning autistic uh, boy. And uh, it's quite interesting. So for my listeners, uh, Neil Garrett is actually a real politician. Um, he's done real politician stuff. Uh, and I think uh, coming up in a couple of months, uh, Neil, you're going to be standing for or you're going to be running running for my local council. Neil, one of the one of the interesting things about you is that you are actually the only person who thought Trump was going to win. Uh, in fact, you actually yeah. put money down on it and you thought he was going to win yeah. way early on. Um, so. Can you can you talk a little bit about sort of what your motivation was behind that? And then, uh, again, I think we have this perception here that mm -hmm. everybody in the UK just hates Trump. Um, and, and is that the case or, or what's what's going on there? Well, to take the second part first. Yeah, pretty. It's 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 pretty hard to find anybody in the UK with anything good to say about Trump. And part of the reason for that is I think there's a similar effect to in the US, whereby even if you might point to a particular thing he did that was maybe not awful, the there is no social prestige in saying anything nice about Trump, basically. Uh, not in most social groups in the UK. So yeah, he's pretty pretty reviled. Um, but you did mention something that it, like the 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 
there's a just a a, a general distaste uh, for for Trump. Yeah. Um, but and then how much of that is just the the fact that we're sort of the redheaded stepchildren anyway to the UK? Like, it isn't easy to say anything nice about any American. No, that is sort true. of is that's and true. is that true? That or? is true. I mean, okay. you know, left wing comedians have have made pretty easy uh, money for as long as I can remember. Uh, just, I mean, all of the things that that Americans tend to attack Trump for. You know, people. I mean, I, I mean, non-Trump supporting Americans obviously tend to attack Trump for being, you know, some kind of brash, ignorant buffoon who is, you know, soiling the dignity of the office that he holds. I think an awful lot of people in Britain, particularly the kind of left-wing, middle-class people, just sort of have that view about America as a whole. And I've always found it completely. Um, well, unfair and untrue. I mean, as you know, I worked for an American company for quite a long time, been to America numerous times. I've always found Americans to be warm and intelligent and, you know, very gracious hosts. So brilliant. Brilliant. So I'm I'm gonna try by the way, during this cast, I'm gonna try and intersperse a little English uh phrasing idiot. here. Oh, okay. And so there may be the odd brilliant. I'm gonna try somewhere I'm gonna try and put in <laughs> sixes and sevens. Um, I'm going to try and say schedule, schedule, which I, still, I, can, I cannot say schedule, 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 and so to just be prepared for that, because we over here uh-huh. have this kind of bias, just like you do, just like when you hear an American talk, you're uh-huh. like, oh my God, what is wrong with this person? We have this weird thing where anybody getting on our TV with a British accent, it's like immediately you must be an expert. You you must have a doctorate in something. But to be fair, though, that is true. Oh, wait, hang on a minute. No, but that's not true because you have Piers Morgan. You have Piers Morgan, don't you? Wait, can, can I just say that you really need to keep him over there? If you can, it, it, it pains me every time I hear that he's made himself unpopular because I worry that he might come back over this way. I, yeah, you're you're welcome to him. <laughs> um, so um, what I was going to say that yeah. I didn't answer the other part of your question, which was why I predicted that Trump would win in very early. Yes, why? So it was. Let me think. When was it? It was probably. Um, it was. It was only about a month after he declared. I think. So the reasons why, I think. So there are two stages to the prediction. So the first stage is who will be the Republican candidate. It was already pretty obvious who the Democrat candidate was going to be. Hillary, you know, her the Democrat primary was kind of conceived as a victory lap. So then the question, so I, th- I, th- I was pretty certain he would become the Republican candidate. Plus, plus the Republican Party is this kind of hollow shell with no ideas. And in fairness, people would say the same thing about the Conservative Party in the UK. But it was like, it was, it was, it was ripe for a, for a hostile takeover. And I very quickly saw that he, I think, had the skills to do that. So then you say, OK, we're now looking at the main event, Hillary versus Donald. Who's going to win that? And... All I could see of Hillary Clinton was just that she seemed kind of smug and entitled and she felt that she was owed the candidacy and owed the presidency. It's like, it's my turn now, you guys, you know, I've been here long enough. It's my turn. And I didn't, and in contrast to Trump has this real, you know, he struck me immediately as having these real street fighter like political instincts. She just seemed kind of very aloof and very cerebral and, you know, I would concede that she probably would have been a better president, but all of her campaigning instincts seem to me to be wrong. Um, and I, I don't know exactly why, but they just, they just seem to be. And so it just struck me very early on that that contest, he would win. And in the end, it was closer than I thought it would be. Um, but 
uh, it wasn't a surprise to me. So yeah, I put I think the, when I put money on Trump to win, I think it was fourteen to one. I think it was it was about seven or eight to one that he would be yeah. the nominee, and I think it was like fourteen or fifteen to one that he would be the president. So I didn't put a great deal of money on, but um, I think I put ten pounds on each. Nice, nice. Oh yeah, well that well, that was the reason why I said it publicly because I knew <laughs> if I right. said it later, everyone would be like, oh right. yeah, well suddenly. So I thought I knew I absolutely knew when I said it that I would get a huge amount of grief because obviously only an idiot, idiot, only an idiot, idiot. Would predict that he would win. And you saw the feedback that I had on my Facebook comment about it. People, uh, it was people were were. Um, I I reacted. I think I reacted poorly. I think I said, "Well, I think my comments were more along the lines of you're crazy, and here's why you're crazy." But uh-huh. uh, I saw people getting angry with you, like actually, yeah, the guy- angry. So, so one of the one of the the things that's sort of a recurring uh, commentator theme over here is is that there's this close analogy between the the populist and I think we're starting to throw around the term populist like it means uneducated yeah. uh, white working class voter, um, but there's a, there's this the populist tie between the Brexit movement, which seems to be this Gordian knot now. Um, and Trump's rise to power, and and do you like it? It's it's pretty heavily pushed over here. It, do you see that correlation? Do you do you do you buy into that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are some similarities, uh, which are sometimes a bit overplayed, but certainly it's similar kind of demographics who uh, who voted Trump and who voted Leave. Although I think. I think the the reasons behind I think it's a bit too easy sometimes to sort of draw easy parallels across from one country to another because I think um, uh, you can get carried away with making generalizations which don't really hold up. I think the thing I think that's been analysed kind of to death though. The thing that really strikes me about it though, which I haven't heard talked about very much, is the other side of both of those equations. So as opposed to the Leave campaign, the Remain campaign, the Remain in the EU campaign. The parallel between that campaign and the Hillary Clinton campaign, which, you know, in the same way that Trump and Brexit were a similar demographic, both of those two campaigns were were picking up a similar kind of demographic. And I think the similarity that I see between both of them is that both seemed very dominated by smug, entitled people who thought that they could kind of phone it in because the other side was so awful, so terrible, so you know, racist, bigoted, homophobic, misogynistic, whatever, that there was, it was almost, it was almost insulting to have to campaign against these people. I think, I think um, Clinton maybe uh, was a bit more explicit about that than Remain. But I think both of the campaigns did a really terrible job of trying to win support. I think they both leaned too heavily on the idea that the other lot was so horrible that all they had to do was point out repeatedly how horrible they were. And everyone would, you know, file into their uh, column on polling day and both campaigns found that that was not the case so so what do you what do you do then do you do you, because this is the age-old argument right do you make fun of the other guy or do you uh do you espouse your own stance yeah. now and i think in trump's case you saw the former working pretty well yeah. right it was not you know trump had he had what was three points jobs 
illegal immigration something about a wall and something about a wall <laughs> the, the military yeah but and it was just those three over and over and yeah. over again and then interspersed with those three things it would be little marco crooked hillary you know sleepy ben carson well i think there's an important difference which is I think voters are quite, voters don't always enjoy the idea that one lot of politicians are going at it hammer and tongs with another lot of politicians. Is that a good British idiom for you? Going at it hammer and tongs. It's it's. So I think it's, I think makes me makes you want to barbecue. I think people. Oh well, you have to think about a uh, blacksmith hammering. You see, you use the tongs to hold the red hot metal and you hammer it. It's sorry, yeah. I'm being boring now. I, I was just I was Americaning you. <laughs> so I think I think people are, are okay with the idea that politicians kind of you know wail on each other, uh, but the the mistake that you see Trump never really attacked Hillary's voters not not as a group. He he had a go at the people in Washington, like the swamp, and the swamp is not Hillary's voters. The swamp is Hillary and all the people who are like her in Washington, including of course lots of the Republican Party, and. Uh, Brexit, the Leave campaign in Brexit also was a kind of anti-elite campaign, but the mistake that Remain made was to imply that the people voting Leave were kind of racist, horrible people, and the mistake that Clinton made, Hillary Clinton made, mm. was to imply that the people voting for Trump were racist, horrible people, like this basket of deplorables thing. And the problem with that is that that is uh, it's it's a it's a senior politician with a huge media platform basically attacking regular people and that's and in particular um saying horrible things about them and their motivation for voting and whether or not you think that happens to be true it's it's just a stupid idea right and then because that's my that's my gut reaction is yeah. that when i see when I see the polls now that 90% of Republicans still support Trump a year and a half in. It's a dwindling band, though, isn't it, Republicans? It, it is. It's, it's 90% of the people who are still left in that group. Only because they're dying. Sure. So the point is this, though. This is the difference between being a pundit and being a politician. So if you're a pundit, you can sit on the sidelines and you can say what you like. But if you've got a newspaper column to write, you can write anything you like. I mean, it, it may be ill-advised to write certain things, but you kind of can. But if you're the candidate, so if you're Hillary Clinton, you're standing there on this platform saying, vote for me to be your president. I will be not just the president of the people who like me, but I'll be the president of all Americans. And I think if you look at people who've been like Barack Obama, was very successful with these quite unifying messages, you know, uh, uniting or at least attempting to unite all Americans with quite a positive message. And I think both Hillary Clinton and the Remain campaign kind of gave off powerful vibes that they basically held quite large parts of the country in contempt. And I think when Hillary Clinton, so, so picture the scene, right? Imagine you're in some. But how do you? So so here's here's my issue. Here's and I and I've struggled. I struggle with this pretty mightily, but I do hold them in contempt. Yeah, sure. But I I do, especially here in the so, south but, where we. But if, have... you, but if you hold me in contempt, why would I vote for you? I don't care. I don't want your vote. You do, otherwise. Like Trump's I don't. In the White I don't House. want your Trump's vote. In the White House. Okay, great. Don't don't pick up my vote, and now Trump's in the White House. I mean, that's the bottom line. A political campaign is all about winning enough votes uh, in the right places to succeed and and win elected office. And if so, so so this is why the so when she, what was it she said? Half of Americans. Uh, are this basket of deplorables and racist and sexist and whatever else she said. So picture how that looks. Let's say you're in Trump country 
or well, it's swing voter country, you know, places like Wisconsin and Michigan, which flipped to Trump, which nobody thought they would. So you're in Michigan or Wisconsin and you're thinking, well, maybe I'll vote for Trump, maybe I'll vote for Hillary. And then uh, she says, oh, all these people who vote for Trump are, 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 you know, deplorable, horrible people. So you sit around, you look at your family. Let's say there's I don't know, six of you in a room or maybe, you know, 20 people at some barbecue or something, chili cook-off, whatever it is, people get up to a Michigan. It'll be a dairy something or other. They went to Wisconsin, uh, a, a cheese bake. And uh, they, uh, you look around and you think, which is the half of the people in my family that she thinks is racist? How dare she? You know, because if you're, if you're thinking of voting Trump, maybe you haven't decided yet, but you're thinking about it. Uh, and, and, and I think what Clinton supporters miss is that she was a pretty horrible, unpopular candidate as well. People had a lot, for all that people had lots of good reasons not to vote for Trump, there were lots of reasons not to vote for Hillary also. So the people who kind of weighing that up, those swing voters who ultimately decide the election, she is kind of telling them that you and your friends and the people you know who are kind of toying with voting for Trump, uh, half of them are racist. And you kind of inevitably, you look around, you go, well, which half is she talking about? How bloody dare she talk about us like that? And even if, as I, sorry, go on. I was going to say, even if you think it, it is just so stupid. It's like political. Well, Romney did the same thing, didn't he? He said half of America will never vote for him because they're all on the government payroll through social security. And for exactly the same reason, it was such a stupid thing to say, really stupid thing to say, even if he thought it and even if it's true. So, so a couple, yeah, a couple, a couple of points. So I think, I think one of the, one of the issues is, is that the vast majority of racists, and, and I, I still think we have to agree on, we have to create Mike Donahue's scale of racism from one to 10. <laughs> um, maybe not put my name on it, but the vast majority of people who are level one through five races, which is sort of either subconscious. So it's one high or it's one one's, low? One's low. Like a 10. Okay. So a 10, a one is like, you're just, you've, you've, you're, you've got the embedded bias of prejudice based on your skin tone, right? No matter what you can't, you can't go below a one. Uh, whereas 10 is like, if you see a black person out in the woods, you're going to do what you can to get rid of them. Um, do you know what? Do you know what? I, I, I'll give you a higher than ten. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Actually, it was a black woman. It was on the Dave Rubin show. For those of you who listen to that, um, it was um, a black a head teacher from a school in the UK, and she met a guy who was a you know proper all singing, all dancing racist from the British National Party, which now has disbanded. And he, this is the level of his racism. So before he went to meet her, so she went to meet him because she's just kind of, people are interesting. I want to see what this guy's all about. So before he went to meet her, his wife would not allow him to hold their baby because he was then going to go and meet this black woman. Yeah. So, so he's just a, t like, I think at some point it's like, it's like the, the volume can go up to 11, but let's be honest, yeah. once you've hit 10, it's just sort of over. But I think I think there's this whole bunch of America that's in that sort of one to five scale, yeah. um, and even though they're in there, and 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 so let's say the fives are people that'll drop the n bomb every once in a while, mm -hmm. or they'll say the n word, yeah. and or when they're going through applications and they see Malik Jackson, they they just keep going. Yeah, I think those those people get incensed when you call them racist. Yeah. And I think we had eight years of liberals telling those people, 
when if you don't like Obama, you don't like him because he's racist mm. or because you're racist, yeah. right? You only don't like him because he's black. And that's a very hard argument yeah. to to uh, come back from. And I think, yeah, that I think I can see where your point resonates now, because there's a whole lot of those one through five racists on both sides of the aisle um, and, and being told that you're racist, even though maybe you kind of are in that four, five, six range, you don't want to hear it. And you certainly don't think it. Yeah. You know, my, my, one of my relatives is, I think just like a seven or an eight, (laughs) but if you ask him, he'll say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I agree. And I think the thing, this is, this is where I think you have to think about how you uh, like a, a political campaign as opposed to just an academic exercise in diagnosing the problem. So definitely there are racists. I mean, that's obviously a fact. Uh, and racists vote. And I guess when they vote, they, I guess they prefer someone the same race as them. I think, the, so my, my I, I think you're right that the left in particular has gone down this really heavy, this road of trying to call everybody a racist, particularly everyone who's white calling them a racist. And I think that's not very helpful. And they're disdainful for people whose votes they should be trying to pick up. Right. But so let's let's so, so let's talk about that in a in a broader scope. So because your your point that you're basically saying is, um, if you want to be Trump, you got to pick up racist votes. You gotta you gotta get people who you don't like and who you think are deplorable. Mm. You've got to get them to vote for you. Otherwise, you're just gonna have to learn how to keep losing on and on and on. And that's a very much um, an ends justify the means sort of perspective. I think one the thing that I've seen, I've participated in and volunteered on a couple of uh, uh, campaigns here. And and if you've listened to my, all my other podcasts, which are quantity two, um, there, there really is this drift here towards, um, I don't know if it's anger, but it's, it's a, it's this, we have to win. Yeah. We have to win. And if it means X or Y or Z, we need to do it. And um, historically, that hasn't been a very leftist type position. Mm-hmm. Historically, we've kind of left that up to the, the right. And I don't, I don't know if there's that same sort of, you know, uh, division or, or equivalency over yeah, in your is, politics. Is. But it's, it's, a real sh- it's a real shift that we're seeing here, that the left is saying you know, all these flower children and wine drinkers and soccer moms are, are really pissed off. And if, if that means getting down and fighting dirty, they're, they're more than willing to do it. And I just, I don't, I don't see any good, um, coming from, from that approach in in any sort of long-term, uh, no, I agree. I mean, that's it is. I mean, in in terms of left v right, that's probably similar in the UK in the sense that the left. I mean, the Labour Party in the UK is the main. Uh, I was going to say centre left party. Traditionally, the main centre left party. They've been taken over with this this sort of Jeremy Corbyn thing, which opinion is divided on. But since I'm here, I'm going to give you my opinion, which is that the guy is a danger. He's it's like um let's let's not throw that around loosely trump is a danger is jeremy corbyn a danger yeah well i mean for example one of the similarities which is which is fascinating 
is the uh, desire to cozy up to Russia. So th we've had this whole thing where two Russian agents came to the UK, um, right. carried out a hit job on uh, a, a, a former Soviet or former Russian agent who defected. Uh, he was a double agent. He was passing secrets back to the British intelligence. And then eventually he kind of retired and came here. And they came here and poisoned him with this Novichik nerve agent. And it's Jeremy Corbyn's kind of Labour Party that is constantly soft peddling on, uh, well, maybe there's not enough evidence, maybe, you know, all the, all the same crap that you get from the Republicans now in America about, well, you know, Putin, maybe he's misunderstood and he's not that bad a guy. I mean, he's a pretty bad guy. He rigged his election and he's essentially at this point an autocratic dictator. He's not really an elected president. And um, so in the same way that the Republicans have gone mad in that sense, the Labour Party here has gone mad. And the other problem, I mean, literally, uh, Jewish people in Britain are talking about leaving. I mean, that is that is a serious thing that is that is literally happening. In 2018, Jewish people in Britain are saying that they are not sure if they feel safe if Jeremy Corbyn wins an election. You know, it's back to that old Jewish uh, kind of uh, cliche of having a suitcase sitting there ready to go just in case it all goes wrong. And it's, I mean, I spoke to, you know, so one of the things you do as a politician is go around, you know, go along the street knocking on all the doors, talking to people. And uh, on Thursday last week, I spoke to a Jewish guy, lovely old guy, I guess, you know, uh, elderly guy lived, you know, he's British, lived here since forever. He's, he's generally been a Labour voter. And he just told me he was scared. He was scared of what might happen. And for example, the latest thing, the latest this week's anti-Semitic outrage from the Labour Party, one of the, so this lady has, she spread, she, so where the ghetto was, the Jewish ghetto in Warsaw, where I think something like 400,000 Jews were corralled and either starved to death within the ghetto, or it was used as a, as a kind of holding point for them being shipped onto the uh, death camps further east. And on the the sort of remaining wall of the ghetto, which is kind of seen as a, as a memorial to, to, to the suffering of, the, of Jewish people, particularly in the Holocaust and, and throughout that period. Uh, she sprayed on the wall uh, some anti-Israeli slogan about Palestine. Um, and she's now being invited to speak at the, I mean, not as a result of that, but, but she's, she's being invited to speak at the Labour Party conference, what you, I guess you would call the convention. And, I mean, why is that? I mean, that's like, you know, neo-Nazi skinheaded thug type territory. Um, there's been, you know, a lot of the way that this anti-Semitism creeps in is in this idea that, oh, I wasn't really talking about Jews. I was talking about Israelis. And I think Jewish people are quite aware of the fact that, uh, in inverted commas, Israelis and in inverted commas, Zionists, you know, what, what they mean is. Yeah. And it's, it's resurfacing here too. Um, we had a, there was an incident, um, just this this week where Bob Woodward, uh, who just released an amazing book, Fear, if you haven't bought it, uh, I, I recommend you do. Um, yeah. And uh, Bob Woodward did a, an, an interview on CNN. And I think uh, Eric Trump um, came out and said, well, he got his three shekels. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And like... And then, and and they always do this thing. So, so the the governor in Florida is is contesting. He's the Republican is uh, uh, going up against a black Democrat, 
And his first sort of statement after the Democrat got elected was, you know, we can't let this guy monkey up the state. Mm, I saw that. Right. Yeah. And and it's and all then, these little saw, words. Well, then I was going to say, I also saw yeah. all of the people all over social media, just as the Corbyn fan people are here, coming out with these endless excuses. It's like this this plausible deniability, which right. over time becomes not very plausible. And it's the same. It's like, it's like, and, the, and that's the yeah. thing. And we're seeing that more and more. So we use, you know, the term globalists, yeah. you know, which is, which is code for, for Jewish, yeah. it just yeah. sort of like a uh, thug is, is code yeah. for, it's just, it's over and over and over. And, and, it, and, it and I think this gets, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say it happened. Uh, I was getting my hair cut. And uh, it was around the time, in fact, this was dated, it was when the, the last big storm was coming into the eastern seaboard in the US. And it turns out this guy was a bit of a conspiracy theory because he starts going on about how they, they, in inverted commas, are controlling all of this. And, and have I heard about chemtrails? And I'm kind of sitting there nodding and going, yeah, whatever, mate. And on he went with all of these weird little conspiracy theories. about. I and mean, I did ask him, why, why is America controlling the weather to hit themselves with a huge storm? And he didn't really have a good answer to that. It was not obvious to me why, <laughs> like, America might hit Russia with a huge storm or America might hit, I don't know, some uh, Middle Eastern, you're like, hey, we'll save our nuclear weapons. We'll use this huge weather control system that we have. Right. It was unclear to me why they would attack the eastern seaboard. Anyway, uh, so, but then he... There was a, there was a, after I challenged him, there was this brief period of quiet, which was quite enjoyable. And then he just came in with, well, of course, you know, it's really the Jews who are controlling it all anyway. And I was like, really? And, and at the time, my son, my middle son, uh, uh, Edward, had a Jewish elementary school teacher. And so I said, you know, my son's school teacher is Jewish. And I'm pretty sure she's not controlling the world. I'm pretty sure the extent of her control ambitions are to get them all sitting down quietly paying attention and maybe reading something it's kind of it's kind of under the surface and it's out there and it's creeping and and that's i think i think that's the thing i think but but here's and here's where leadership and people like the democrats say words matter and then we get laughed at by people at the right but when when people see trump and other political leaders making these you know shekels dog whistle bullhorns um it it starts giving other people the license to to start saying that i mean that's a pretty provocative statement from that guy and i I mean it gives it social acceptability you know in the same way we were talking earlier that the left has through this identity politics thing has rehabilitated race-based insults in polite society which is obviously a stupid idea, a stupid thing to have done. Uh, I think the right in America and the left in Britain uh, more so. I mean, there are still right-wing neo-Nazis here, but the point is they don't control one of the two main political parties. Uh, so it's the fact <laughs> that they control... Ours too. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. So, so, so your nutter right is controlling the Republicans and our nutter left is controlling the Labour Party. And it's what it does is it gives social acceptability to these views and it's kind of... It, as I say, I don't. I mean, I, I'm really still not sure. Opinion polling suggests that actually all of these anti-Semitic tropes are actually not held by a majority of people. It's a, it's a minority. But uh, I was listening to a really interesting podcast a couple of days ago. Uh, Jonathan Haidt was talking. It, it, obviously, he was pitching his new book, Coddling of the American Mind. And he made the point in his research that actually what it only takes is a vocal minority. It can be quite a small minority, but as long as it's very vocal, it can set a tone 
which can influence everyone else and make it seem socially acceptable to do or not do things that this small vocal minority is is either pushing for or pushing against. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think that's my concern about Trump is that him and the people around him are pushing the Republican Party in a direction that is that is just wrong. And what I see is that where there was initially a lot of resistance to him, it's just folded. We're, yeah, because we're tired. It's yeah. it's it's drama exhaustion. Like we just can't. Yeah. Like there was there was the five stages of of whatever, <laughs> and and we're in this thing now. We're just when you get beaten over the head with something, you're like, okay, yeah, you're gonna put fifteen thousand kids in detention and definitely okay. And things, things that would have made us apoplectic, you know, well, that, at sixes and sevens a year ago. You know, when, I, when I contacted you and said, you know, I am now rooting for the Democrats in the midterms. That was the thing that yes. really pushed me over the edge. It was the, uh, the, uh, what was it the called? Kids. The child separation policy. Well, it wasn't just the kids. I mean, it was, it was so many of the details of it. Like, for example, I would guess, I haven't been following the story, but I would guess that lots of those kids still haven't been reunited yes. because of the fact that it was done in such a slapdash way that there was no paper trail. Right. So who is this three-year-old kid? Who does he belong to? Where's he from? I mean, somewhere in South America or <laughs> we, Central we, America. We keep asking who is he supposed him? to be reunited? He's not delegate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, show, point to your house on the map. We, yeah, we exactly. have, there are photos of these kids in courtrooms. Yeah. Like yeah. like four and five-year-old children sitting in a court at the, uh, you know, like like they're the they're the defendant. It's 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 insane. Well, exactly. I mean, um, and, I, and I can picture how that is. I mean, my children are five and eight, with the two youngest and eleven, my daughter. And so it's like I can picture how my five-year-old would be in that situation, and you have no idea. And so, but the problem is, what I see is that so my characterization of Trump is that he is basically a manipulative bully. I think that's how I'd characterize his his personality. Sure. And that's not far off my initial assessment. And I think the the things that we were talking about earlier that I spotted in him that I thought would, would allow him to just carve through the Republican field and then knock over Hillary, it's those same traits. I think, you know, this ability to, it's kind of a bully's instinct. You know, I saw, I saw some of the stuff that Scott Adams did where, you know, Trump is playing 14-dimensional chess. And I think there's some truth in what he was saying but I think he's not playing 14-dimensional chess. I think what he is doing, he has a kind of bully's instinct. Cunning. People say cunning. I I think it's a kind of instinct. I think he can smell people's weaknesses, and then he is shameless about pounding on them. And I think that's what he has. That's what got him through the election, and I think that characterizes all of his behavior since. And so when you look at the Republican Party now, what I see is it's characterized by greed and fear. I think greed that they think, hey, this guy's a winner. We didn't think we could win, but now we can win with this guy. So we need to follow him. Uh, and fear that because he is such a bully, it's like you're with him or you're against him. There's no middle way. So if you're in the Republican Party, you need to be a signed up Trump or you need to be a signed up anti-Trump. And since he's the guy with the big seat, uh, I think people fold and become anti-Trump. And so what I see, the reason I think they need basically burying in the election is because the fear of them in future losing their seats in some tidal wave support for the Democrats, I think is the only thing that will generate enough fear to counteract the fear they have of standing up to him. Right. And so speaking of, I mean, speaking of elections, we do have the big one coming up in November. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to relate something you said to uh, one of the races that we have down here. So you, you made the comment earlier about, you know, one side... F- you know, 40%, the other side, 40%. And you want to pick up the, you want to pick up the swing voters. You want to, you want to pick up the middle ground. 
And I think that's, I think that's been the political perspective for 200 years, right? Uh, maybe maybe 2,000 years. And it was funny. The New York Times came out uh, with a, it's not, a very... It's not, quite, it's not quite the middle ground. It's the swing voters. I think people have this view of politics that it's like a normal distribution curve with people on the left and people on the right and most people in the middle. And that's not how support is distributed. Most people are pretty left-wing economically and kind of right-wing authoritarian socially. Those are people's instincts. But, but those, two don't, those two don't mix. Well, they, but this is what populism is. This is what Trump is. Uh, you know, it's about, uh, well, maybe not Trump, but populists generally tend to be very pro lots of spending. All that government spending you like, yeah, we'll keep that and we'll do more. Um, but all of that authoritarian stuff about, so basically people like to feel that they know how other people should run their lives. And they like the idea of voting in somebody who will make other people do what they think they should be doing. And that's kind of what authoritarian my, my... populism is. It's not quite the middle. It's not quite appealing to the middle. Okay. I just, I get, I get, um, when, when people tell me that they're um, fiscally conservative and yeah. socially liberal, yeah. I, I go nuts. I have an aneurysm. Oh, that's me. Because go, you go can't, on, well, because you can't be, how do you spend, uh -huh. how do you fund those social, if you're socially liberal and you believe in things like nationalized healthcare yeah. uh, and, and uh, maternity leave and, uh, you know, all those sort of things, yeah. those have to be funded and that requires taxation. It does. And, and so there's, there's this direct thing of like, how, how can you, you're saying on one hand, I want to, I want to support all these programs, but I don't want to raise taxes for them. And there's just that inherent dichotomy that I don't, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, and I think if like, if you're trying to say, I just don't want to be, I don't want to be reckless with our spending. Okay. Well, that's everybody. Everybody yeah. doesn't. You know, there's silly, like silly money spending. I don't want to spend silly money, but we have to, I have to, I have to keep going here because we're close. We're, we're, I've been yelled at for okay. talking too much. Well, I'm sorry. So, so we'll we, say, I'll say we what have I mean. this. I mean, what, go ahead. For me, it's, yeah, In your for defense. Me, it's not so much the spending. Uh, it's not so much about taxes as such. See, there's a debate in the Conservative Party here now about whether we should have tax cuts. Boris has just published this thing about cutting taxes, and I don't agree with that. I think this is not the time for cutting taxes, and for the same reason that Trump's tax cuts horrify me because they're completely unfunded. The point that I, I think the point I have is that whatever your level of spending that you decide you want to have. You have to meet that with taxation. So not capital spending. Capital spending, you can invest and build a bridge and pay for it over 20 years or whatever. If, as long as the bridge project makes sense, then it makes sense to borrow the money to, to, to fund it. But revenue spending, you really need to cover that in year. Now, you can have some leeway over the economic cycle. So you don't crush spending during a recession, for example. So you can have a kind of counter cyclical government spending where you uh, spend a bit more in a recession, but that equally that means you have to not continue to be overspending during boom years where you have good tax receipts. The, the point I would make is that if you if you want to spend money on something, then you really need to have a plan of how you're going to pay for it, and that's what I see neither. So, so you're right. No, that's that was the position of the Republican Party really? up until about well, up until about. 15 20 years ago oh, I see. and then it just got ridiculous yeah, yeah no and 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 it's it's so funny because if you ask 100 people on the street 80 of them will tell you that the republicans are better at money and better for the economy than the democrats are even though statistically 
you know, in terms of growth or the deficit and keeping budgets under control. The, the Democrats far outshine uh, the Republicans. In fact, we have this weird cycle where a Republican will completely mess up the economy and then a Democrat will come in and save it. So, for instance, uh, the deficits caused by uh, Reagan's uh, tax cuts uh, in the in the 80s, you know, Clinton came in and and uh, and got us back to a budget surplus, which yeah. Bush promptly drove into the ground. I almost said um, flew into a tower, but that's not funny. Um, and you know, and then and then just put us into this near uh, recession, and and then Obama came along and and pulled us out of it. I thought doing a Herculean effort. And not all the way, but he started us back on the road to recovery. And now we have the most, the the grossest, most lax, uh, most fiscally irresponsible budget and uh, executive actions that we've we've had in maybe two hundred and fifty years. And it's just, it's bizarre to me that 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 fact of life uh, hasn't made its way down to the the well, average Joe yet. To be, t- I mean, this is kind of a uh, a kind of brutal take, but it. Roughly speaking, it seems to me that the Republican Party likes to spend a lot of money on military and police, and the Democrats like to spend a lot of money on, I don't know what, schools and hospitals or something. Uh, to, to, to take some it, it is like stereotype. that. But I don't see the Republican Party as being really a very fiscally uh, conservative, like fiscally hawkish, I suppose I should say, party. Um, and because it, it just seems to me that they don't care. So, Neil, you yourself have an election uh, coming up pretty soon. You're you're standing for <clears throat> Grand Poobah of the uh, Henley upon Thames region. Is that right? <laughs> uh, it's not quite right. No, it's the um, London Borough of Sutton. So London's divided into about thirty boroughs, and the one that I live in, which is down at the bottom, kind of about seven o'clock. On the, uh, if you think of London as a clock face, uh, London Borough of Sutton. Um, I'm standing for a seat. It's a it's a by election. So your spending limit, like I know mm. the UK has some weird finance laws. For some ridiculous reason, you want to put caps on campaign spending. So is it <laughs> is it fifty million dollars? Is it ten million dollars? What's what's sort of your limit on on how much you can spend on this uh, election coming up? Yeah. So from pretty much from the day that I'm announced as the candidate through until polling day, which is the uh, so. Uh, the 25th of uh, of October, so basically from about the 15th or 16th of September through until about the 25th of October, we are allowed to spend in total about £1,200, which is about uh, 15 so one point, per... So 1.2 million. <laughs> yes. So it's about uh, 15 pence per voter over the entire period. Let's say Member of Parliament. We're like House of yep. Commons. I don't think you get to run for House of Lords. You're sort of born into it but house of house I mean, of you, commons, get, you get picked these days yeah house um, of commons is i guess the equivalent of the house of representatives or the you know, right the, so their 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 limits must be much more reasonable if you're running whatever your what's your what's your do you know what your parliamentary district is do you have a of course it's carshalton and wallington oh jesus is there a more english name what was that <laughs> carshalton Wallington. Oh, because Carshalton. Yep. On its own at Wallington. It had to be put together. Correct. 
Uh, That's an area of about uh, 70,000 electors, something like that. Next, you're going to tell me uh, Smythe Jones is your MP. <laughs> and I think for this seat, Cushalton and Wallington, it was about thirteen or £14,000 over that short period. And the other point I think worth bringing up that might not be at all obvious to the American audience is that political parties in the UK or candidates cannot buy TV advertising or radio advertising. Mm. Uh, and they cannot pay people to go and knock on doors and you cannot pay people to make phone calls on your behalf. There's kind of a grey area in that you can pay for polling, but you have to be very careful about the polling questions you asked. And if it starts to become, you know, don't you think you should vote for this guy because he's brilliant, uh, that just gets classified as campaigning and, and you're not allowed to do that. So you can't spend any of this money on any of those things. I think I think uh, everybody American listening just said I don't have to put up with radio ads. I don't have to put up with TV ads. I don't have to put up nope. with robo dialers. Uh, so so here's and I think here's one of the the sort of sad byproducts of our system versus your system is that it it has effectively excluded uh, normal middle class people from running for political office. That that because uh, dollars equals viability it's it's not about mm. who you are or what you stand for or anything when the parties are out there looking for candidates they want to know are you going to be able to self-finance your campaign or are we going to have to help you and they yes. don't want to have to help anybody they want all their money for the presidential and for the presidential candidates they want you to live on your own and what that means yeah. is, is if they're trying to decide between the super great candidate uh, who is, you know, a housewife and, and but she's awesome and this sort of schlep who's a millionaire, um, they're going to pick the schlep. It's the schlep every time. Yeah. It is. So yeah, I mean, it's, there, it's there is just, a similar sad. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, without getting too far down the road of painting uh you know, an incredibly rosy picture of the situation here. It is a fact that people are excluded from standing here, but I think the point is that the bar is much lower. Certainly if you're standing at a local election, you know, so as I am, as you would gather, if, if this total spending limit is just, you know, £1,000 or so, uh, then most people could either themselves or a few friends get together the cash to run for a council if you wanted to. Uh, and in fact, we have three independent on Southern Council, here there are three independent candidate uh, three independent councillors so people who are elected they just self-funded there was a particular issue the council built uh, a waste incinerator in the area uh, and so they decided they would run as the anti-incinerator people uh, and they stood as independents and they won the seats the three seats in that area so it's completely possible to do that I suppose what it means here is that political parties tend to focus on people who can recruit and organize and motivate a sort of volunteer workforce because obviously if your um, if your campaign spending is is quite severely limited then the way that you gain a competitive advantage is not by you know finding some incredibly rich guy who can donate millions but by getting lots of people who will come and spend a few hours knocking on some doors and telling people how great you are and so it does switch the focus of the you know it switches the focus of the campaign much more towards recruiting grassroots support and it and it change it sort of biases the skill set they look for so your housewife who is awesome that you described you know if she's somebody who could who could motivate a whole load of people to come out and knock on doors for her or make phone calls for her then um absolutely she could 
you know, she could, she would almost be welcomed as a as a candidate. So are you, um, you're saying what, that 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 Gandhi would have made an excellent uh, UK poll? Maybe I don't know that he was a big fan of the British. I think famously he someone said, "What do you think of British culture?" And he said, "I think it will be a good idea." But, uh, <laughs> what else has to do with there, Gandhi? Sure. So to wrap this up. You are going to, you, we call it running, you call it sanding, which is mm -hmm. maybe why ours is a lot more expensive. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, what What is the key issue that's going to differentiate you from your opponent? Is it your pro-life stance? Is it your gun control stance? Is it your LGBTQ <laughs> stance? What is it that the voters are going to say, oh, okay, there's Neil, and then there's this guy, and and based on X, I'm going to go with one of them? Well, the the campaign issues, as far as I'm concerned, are to do with the fact that the, so the Liberal Democrats uh, are the party that's in control of the council in Sutton. And I think our campaign is going to focus on having someone elected in Belmont who will stand up for those issues. So, for example, there's a huge um, cancer research hub that is being planned. And it's, it's a really excellent, it's really excellent. Uh, it'll, it'll, well, it'll generate a, a, quite a large amount of economic activity, but also the research that it's doing into cancer drugs will be really, um, really worthwhile. But one of the problems with these great new pieces of infrastructure is whether they actually are good neighbours to the people who live around them. And I think the Liberal Democrats will have this idea that all of these people will arrive by bicycle and then they'll provide hardly any parking on site. All the people who live nearby uh, will then end up with uh, huge amounts of overflow parking, traffic, and so on. So I suspect that will be a bit of an issue. In, in keeping in with your whole volunteer thing, I am going to volunteer my political uh, expertise and consultancy to assist you with your campaign here real quick. if. If, if I can, as a foreigner. Uh, so the, the whole, in, in talking about the, the research center, it's, it's very simple. Mm -hmm. You just go out and you say, do you like cancer? Why are you fighting <laughs> for cancer? You know, do you want cancer? Do you want your friends to get cancer? Uh, you know, why would you you know here's something that has the potential we have the potential to cure cancer here right here yes. in willoughby upon thames and in belmont sure and <laughs> and we have the why would anyone not want to potentially cure cancer and and if you're yeah. fighting for this you must love cancer ah well yes. i that's I mean, that's so what we would go with yeah. And then well, the a, big, is... a big photo of your opponent yeah. with the words cancer lover underneath it. There, there is a slight wrinkle in your otherwise brilliant plan. Mm. And that is that there is complete cross-party support for the Cancer Research Center. It's actually, I mean, if, if, if my liberal Democrat opponent, whoever he or she may be, were sitting here, they'd be interrupting at this point, telling you that they are, it's actually their plan, because obviously they run the council. But at any rate, it has cross-party support, including from the Labour London Mayor, the Labour Party London Mayor is also supporting it. I mean, it's it's kind of a no-brainer that it's a brilliant idea. But uh, as I say, the, one of the things, so the Liberal Democrats kind of like to imagine this, um, you know, wonderful world where nobody's using their horrible polluting cars anymore and they're all traveling around by bicycle and, you know, 
yogurt powered yurt or something. Uh, and this all sounds wonderful, except that the area that it is, is basically quite low density suburban and the public transport infrastructure there is quite, uh, quite poor, certainly by London standards. And it's right on the edge of London. So very large proportion of the people who go there will be traveling up from Surrey, where the transport infrastructure doesn't really extend very much down that way. So majority of people will arrive by car and they'll probably yeah. want to park their car when they get there. So they need uh, a parking lot. Democrats. They well, yes, exactly. It's as yeah. simple as that, uh, and okay. some, some some improvements to the intersections so, around it. Okay, so this I'm just going to show you my political brilliance here because I'm going to pivot. Go, go on. Yeah, I'm going to pivot. Brace okay. yourself. I'm standing by. I'm bracing. The fatality rate for bicyclists has got to be significantly higher than car drivers. I would think, in terms of miles. Mm, I would. Yeah, maybe. I yeah. don't know those figures, but you're probably right. Yeah, so let's just be conservative and just say five times. So why do you want to kill our researchers? <laughs> why, if if they're five times more likely to die, going to try and find the cure to cancer because you won't buy them a, a piece of gravel for them to park a car <laughs> on? What is wrong with you? And why do you hate the people who are trying to save our lives? I have a grandma with cancer. I, I don't, but who knows? She might. Uh, and you're you're trying to kill the very people who are trying to save her life. And I take great uh, offense at that. Well, when we uh, sit down over the weekend and work out our campaign plan, I'll definitely put that uh, on the short list and see see whether it flies. No charge, Neil. I, I can't guarantee. Well, that, I, I, yeah, exactly. No charge. Winning strategy. <laughs> don't kill our uh, yeah, scientists. Yeah, Save our scientists. Yes. Save hashtag save our save our Sutton scientists. Exactly. Well, a lot of them will not live in Sutton. I mean, this is the oh, this is the uh, uh, semantics. This is the curious problem. But anyway, Neil, I have to wrap. We had a great episode. I super appreciate you taking the time and um, best of luck. I, I would send ten to fifteen thousand dollars to your campaign, but I'm not allowed <laughs> to. I apologize. Nope, I have to send uh, it back. You will have to. Uh, I think my advice is probably worth more than that in terms of uh, strategy. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, have have a great week, Neil, and and thank you for coming on board. Thanks very much, Mike. You bet. See ya. Hey everyone, I wanted to say thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, great discussion with Neil, and unfortunately, there is no cultural segment this week. The world is bereft o culture. Uh, but we will make up for it next time uh, in our interview with uh, attorney at law, Stacey Sena. So, hey, have a great week. And again, thanks for listening. You can check out our website at tiltatwindmills.com.